Hello and welcome back to the Gospel Podcast. I'm your host Colton McAteer and I thought we'd do something a little bit different today. Um, Today or yesterday, depending on when you're listening, maybe a week from now, whatever, it's uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon's birthday. So in honor of him, I thought we'd read one of his sermons on the Gospel and then talk a little bit about his life. So I hope you enjoy and here you go. The Heart of the Gospel, number 1910, a sermon delivered on the Lord's Day morning, July 18, 1886, by Charles Haddon Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we may be made the righteousness of God in him. The heart of the gospel is redemption, and the essence of redemption is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. They who preach this truth preach the gospel and whatever else they may be mistaken, but they who preach not the atonement, whatever else they declare, have missed the soul and substance of the divine message. In these days, I feel bound to go over and over again the elementary truths of the gospel. In peaceful times, we feel free to make excursions into interesting districts of truth which lie far afield. But now, we must stay at home and guard the hearths and homes of the church by defending the first principles of the faith. In this age, there have risen up in the church itself men who speak perverse things. There be many that trouble us with their philosophies and novel interpretations, whereby they deny the doctrines they profess to teach and undermine the faith they are pledged to maintain. It is well that some of us who know what we believe and have no secret meaning for our words should just put our foot down and maintain our, our standing, holding forth the word of life and plainly declaring the foundational truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a parable. In the days of Nero, there was a great shortness of food in the city of Rome. Although there was abundance of corn to be purchased at Alexandria, a certain man who owned a vessel went down into the sea coast, and there he noticed many hungry men straining their eyes towards the sea, watching for the vessels that would come from Egypt with corn. When the vessels came to the shore, one by one, the poor people wrung their hands in bitter disappointment. For on board the galleys there was nothing but sand, which the tyrant emperor had compelled them to bring for use in the arena. It was infamous cruelty. When men were dying to command when men were dying of hunger to command trading vessels to go to and fro, bringing nothing else but sand for gladiator shows when wheat was so greatly needed. Then the merchant whose vessel was moored by the quay said to his shipmaster, Take you good heed that you bring nothing back from Alexandria but corn, and whereas, before you have brought in the vessel, a measure or two of sand. Bring you not so much as I would lie upon a penny this time. Bring nothing else, I say, but wheat, for these people are dying, and now we must keep our vessel for this one business of bringing food to them. Alas, I have seen many mighty galleys of late loaded with nothing but mere sand of philosophy and speculation. And I have said within myself, Nay, but I will bear nothing in my ship but the revealed truth of God, the bread of life so greatly needed by the people. God grant us this day that our ship may have nothing on board and that may merely gratify curiosity or please the taste, but that there may be necessary truths for the salvation of souls. I would have each one of you say, well, it was just the old, old story of Jesus and his love and nothing else. I have no desire to be famous for anything but preaching the old gospel. There are plenty who can fiddle to you the new music. It is for me to have no music at any time but that which is heard in heaven. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, to him be glory forever and ever. 
I intend, dear friends, to begin my discourse with the second part of the text, in which the doctrine of substitution is set forth in these words. He has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is the basis and power of those who appeal, of, of those appeals which it is our duty to make to the consciences of men. I have found, my brethren, by long experience that nothing touches the heart like the cross of Christ, and when the heart is touched and wounded by the two-edged sword of the law, nothing heals its wounds like the balm which flows from the pierced heart of Jesus. The cross is life to the spiritually dead. There is an old legend which can have no literal truth in it, but if you, to be regarded as a parable, it is then most instructive. They say that when the Empress Helena was searching for the true cross, they dug deep at Jerusalem and found the three crosses of Calvary buried in the soil, which out of the three crosses was the ver veritable cross upon which Jesus died, they could not tell, except by certain test. So they brought a corpse and laid it on one of the crosses, but there was neither life nor motion. When the same dead body touched another cross, it lived, and they said, This is the true cross. When we see men quickened, converted, and sanctified by the doctrine of the substitutionary sacrifice, we may justly conclude that it is the true doctrine of atonement. I have known men made to live unto God in holiness except by the doctrine of the death of Christ. I have not known men made to live unto God in holiness except by the doctrine of the death of Christ on man's behalf. Hearts of stone that never beat with life before have been turned to flesh through the Holy Spirit causing them to know this truth. A sacred tenderness has visited the obstinate when they have heard of Jesus crucified for them. Those who have lain at hell's dark door, wrapped about with a sevenfold death shade, even upon them as a great light shined. Even upon them has a great light shined. The story of the great lover of the souls of men who gave himself for their salvation is still in the hand of the Holy Ghost, the greatest of all forces in the realm of mind. So this morning, I'm going to handle first the great doctrine, and then afterward, and secondly, as God shall help me, we shall come to the great argument, which is contained in the 20th verse. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. First then, with as much brevity as possible, I will speak upon the great doctrine. The great doctrine, the greatest of all, is this, that God seeing men to be lost by reason of their sin, has taken that sin of theirs and laid it upon his only begotten Son, making him to be sin for us, even him who knew no sin, and that in consequence of his transference of sin, he that believes in Christ Jesus is made just and righteous, yea, is made the righteousness of God in Christ. Christ was made sin, that sinners might be made righteousness. That is the doctrine of the substitution of our Lord Jesus Christ on the behalf of guilty men. Now consider first who was made sin for us. The description of our great surety here given is upon one point only, and it may more than suffice us for our present meditation. Our substitute was spotless, innocent, and pure. He has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, became incarnate and was made flesh and dwelt here among men. But though he was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, he knew no sin. Though upon him sin was laid, yet not so as to make him guilty. He was not. He could not be a sinner. He had no personal knowledge of sin. Throughout the whole of his life, he never committed an offense against the great law of truth and right. The law was in his heart. It was his nature to be holy. He could say to all the world, Which of you convict convicteth me of sin? Even his vasculating judge inquired, Why? What evil hath he done? When all of Jerusalem was challenged and bribed to bear witness against him, no witness could be found. It was necessary to misquote and twist his words before a charge could be trumped against him, trumped up against him by his 
bitterest enemies. His life brought him in contact with both the tables of the law, but no single command had he transgressed. As the Jews examined the Paschal lamb before they slew it, so did the scribes and Pharisees and doctors of the law and rulers and princes examine the Lord Jesus without finding offense in him. He was the Lamb of God, without blemish and without spot. And there was no sin of commission. So was there about the Lord no fault of omission. Probably, dear brethren, we that are believers have been enabled by divine grace to escape most sin of commission. But I, for one, have to mourn daily over sins of omission. If we have spiritual graces, yet they do not reach that point required of us. If we do that which is right in itself, yet we usually mar our work upon the wheel, either in the motive or in the manner of doing it, or by the self-satisfaction with which we view it when it is done. We come short of the glory of God in some respect or another. We forget to do what we ought to do, or doing it, we are guilty of lukewarmness, self-reliance, unbelief, or some other grievous error. It was not so with our divine Redeemer. We cannot say that he was that there was any feature deficient in his perfect beauty. He was complete in heart, purpose, and thought, and word, and deed, and spirit. You could not add anything to the life of Christ without its being manifestly an excrescence. He was emphatically an all-around man, as we would say these days. His life is a perfect circle, a complete epitome of virtue. No pearl has dropped from the string of from the silver string of his character. No one virtue has overshadowed and dwarfed the rest. All perfections combine in perfect harmony to make it in him one surpassing perfection. Neither did our Lord know a sin of thought. His mind never produced an evil wish or desire. There was in his in the heart of our blessed lord a wish for any there never was in the heart of our blessed lord a wish for any evil pleasure nor a desire to escape any suffering or shame which was involved in his service when he said father if it is possible let this cup pass from me he never desired to escape the bitter potion at the expense of his perfect life work the if it be possible meant if it be consistent with full obedience to the Father and the accomplishment of the divine purpose, we see the weakness of his character shrinking and the holiness of his nature resolving and conquering as he adds, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. He took upon him the likeness of sinful flesh, but through that flesh, but though that flesh often caused him weariness of body, it never produced in him the weakness of sin. He took our infirmities, but never exhibited an infirmity which had the least of blameworthiness attached to it. Never fell there an evil glance from those blessed eyes. Never did his lips let drop a hasty word. Never did those feet go on an evil errand, nor those hands move towards a sinful deed, because his heart was filled with holiness and love. Within as well as without, our Lord was unblemished. His desires were as perfect as his actions. Searched by the eyes of the omniscience, no shadow of fault could be found in him. Yes, more. There were no tendencies about our substitute towards evil in any form. In us, there are always those tendencies. For the taint of original sin is upon us. We have to govern ourselves and hold ourselves under stern restraint, or we would rush headlong into destruction. Our carnal nature lusts to evil and needs to be held in as with a bit and a bridle. Happy is the man who can master himself. But with regard to our Lord, it was his nature to be pure and right and loving. All his sweet wills were toward goodness his unconstrained life was holiness itself. He was the holy child, Jesus. The prince of this world found in him no fuel for the flame which he desired to kindle, 
Not only did no sin flow from him, but there was no sin in him, nor inclination, nor tendency in that direction. Watch him in secret, and you find him in prayer. Look into his soul, and you find him eager to do and suffer the Father's will. Oh, the blessed character of Christ! If I had the tongues of men and of angels, I could not worthily set forth his absolute perfection. Justly may the Father be pleased with him. Well, may heaven adore him? Beloved, it was absolutely necessary that any one who should be able to suffer in our stead should himself be spotless. A sinner obnoxious to punishment by reason of his own offenses, what can he do but bear the wrath which is due to his own sin? Our Lord Jesus Christ as man was made under the law, but he owed nothing to that law. He perfectly fulfilled it in all respects. He was capable of standing in the room, place instead of others, because he was under no obligation of his own. He was only under obligation towards God because God, because he had voluntarily undertaken to be the surety and sacrifice for those whom the Father had given him. He was clear himself, or else he could not have entered into bonds for guilty men. Oh, how I admire him, that being such as he was, spotless and thrice holy, so that even the heavens were not pure in his sight, and he charged the angels with folly, yet he condescended to be made sin for us? How could he endure to be numbered with the transgressors and bear the sin of many? It may be no misery for a sinful man to live with sinful men, but it would be a heavy sorrow for the pure-minded to dwell in a company of abandoned and licentious wretches. What an overwhelming sorrow it must have been for the pure and perfect Christ to tabernacle among the hypocritical, the selfish, and the profane. How much worse that he himself should have taken upon himself the sin of those guilty men. His sensitive and delicate nature must have shrunk from even the shadow of sin, and yet read the words and be astonished. He has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Our perfect Lord and Master bore our sins in his body on the tree. He before he before whom the sun itself is dim and the pure azure of heaven is defilement was made sin. I need not put this in fine words. The fact is itself too grand to need any magnifying by human language. To gild refined gold or paint the lily were absurd, but much more absurd would it be to try to overlay with flowers of speech the matchless beauties of the cross. It is sufficient to simply rhyme and say, Oh, hear that piercing cry. What can its meaning be? My God, my God, oh, why hast thou in wrath forsaken me? Oh, t'was because our sins on him, my God, were laid. He who himself had ne'er sinned, for sinners sin was made. This leads me on to the second point of the text, which is what was done with him who knew no sin. He was made sin. It is a wonderful expression. The more you weigh in, the more you weigh it, the more you marvel at it. Singular strength. Only the Holy Ghost might originate such language. It was for the divine It was wise for the divine teacher to use very strong expressions, for otherwise the thought might not have entered human minds. Even now, despite the emphasis, clearness, and distinctiveness of the language used here and elsewhere in Scripture, there are found men daring enough to deny the substitution is taught in Scripture. With such subtle wits, it is useless to argue. It is clear that the language has no meaning for them. It is clear that language has no meaning for them. To read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and to accept it as relating to the Messiah and then to deny his substitutionary sacrifice is simply wickedness. It would be vain to reason with such beings. 
They are so blind that if they were transported to the sun, they could not see. In the church and out of the church, there is a deadly animosity to this truth. Modern thought labors to get away from what is obviously the meaning of the Holy Spirit, that sin was lifted from the guilty and laid upon the innocent. It is written, the Lord has made on has made the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is as plain language as can be used, but if any plainer was required, here it is. He has made him to be sin for us. The Lord God laid upon Jesus, who voluntarily undertook it, all the weight of human sin. Instead of its resting on the sinner who did commit it, it was made to rest upon Christ, who did not commit it. While the righteousness which Jesus wrought out was placed to the account of the guilty, who had not worked it out, and so that the guilty are treated as righteous. Those who by nature are guilty are regarded as righteous, while he who by nature knew no sin whatsoever was treated as guilty. I think I must have I think I must have read in scores of books that such transfer is impossible. But the statements has had no effect on my mind. I do not care whether it is impossible or not with, un, with learned unbelievers. It is evidently possible with God, for he has done it. But they say it is contrary to reason. I do not care for that. It may be contrary to reason of those unbelievers, but it is not contrary to mine. And if I am to be guided by reason, I prefer to follow my own. The atonement is a miracle, and miracles are rather to be accepted by faith than measured by calculation. A fact is the best of arguments. It is a fact that the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. God's revelation proves the fact, and our faith defies human questioning. God says it, and I believe it, and I believe it, and in believing it, I find life and comfort in it. Shall I not preach it? Assuredly, I will. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, his flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. Christ was not guilty, and could not be made guilty, but he was treated as if he were guilty, because he will to stand in the place of the guilty. Yes, he was not only treated as a sinner, but he was treated as if he had been sin itself in the abstract. This is an amazing utterance. The sinless one was made to be sin. Sin pressed our great substitute very sorely. He felt the weight of it on the Garden of Gethsemane, where he sweat, as it were, drops of blood falling to the ground. The full pressure of it came upon him when he was nailed to the accursed tree. There in the hours of darkness he bore infinitely more than we could tell. We know that he bore condemnation from the mouth of man, so that it is written, he was numbered with the transgressors. We know that he bore shame for our sakes. Did not your hearts tremble last Sunday evening when our text was, then did you spit in his face? It was a cruel scorn that exhausted itself upon his blessed person. This I say, we know, we know that he borne pains innumerable of body and of mind. He thirsted, cried out in the agony of desertion. He bled, he died. We know that he poured out his soul unto death and yielded up the ghost. But there was at the back and beyond all this an immeasurable abyss of suffering. The Greek liturgy fitly speaks of thine unknown sufferings. Probably to us they are unknowable sufferings. He was God as well as man, and the Godhead lent an omnipotent power to the manhood, so that there was compressed within his soul and endued by it an amount of anguish of which we can form no conception I will say no more. It is wise to veil what is impossible to depict. This text both veils and discovers his sorrow. As it says, he made him to be sin. Look into the words. 
perceive their meaning if you can. The angels desire to look into it. Gaze into the terrible crystal. Let your eyes search deep into this opal, within whose jeweled depth there are flames of fire. The Lord made the perfect innocent one to be sent for us. That means more of humiliation, darkness, agony, and death than you can conceive. It brought a kind of distraction and well nigh a destruction to the tender and gentle spirit of our Lord. I do not say that our sub, that our substitute endured a hell that were unwarrantable. I will not say that he endured either the exact punishment for sin or an equivalent for it, but I do say that what he endured rendered to the justice of God a vindication of his law more clear and more effectual than would have been rendered to it by the damnation of the sinners for whom he died. The cross is under many aspects a more full revelation of the wrath of God against human sin than even Tophet and the smoke of torment which goes up forever and ever. Who would know God's hate of sin must see the only begotten bleeding in body and bleeding in soul even unto death. He must in fact spell out each word of my text and read its innermost meaning. There, my brethren, I am ashamed of the poverty of my explanation, and I will therefore only repeat the full of sublime language of the apostle. He has made him to be sent for us. It is more than he has put him to grief. It is more than God has forsaken him. It is more than the chastisement of our peace was upon him. It is most suggestive of all descriptions. He has made him to be sin for us. O oh, depth of terror and height of love. So I pass on to notice in the third place. Who did it? The text says he made him to be sin for us. That is, God himself. It was God himself who appointed his dear son to be made sin for guilty men. The wise ones tell us that the substitution cannot be just. Who made the judges of what is right and just? I ask them whether they believe that Jesus suffered and died at all. If they believe that he did, how do they account for the fact? Do they say that he died as an example? Then I ask, is it just for God, is it just for God to allow a sinless being to die as an example? The fact of our Lord's death is sure, and has been accounted for. Ours is the fullest and truest explanation. In the appointment of the Lord Jesus Christ to be made sin for us, there was first of all a display of the divine sovereignty. God here did what none but he could have done. It would not have been possible for all of us together to have laid sin upon Christ. But it was possible for the great judge of all who gives no account of his matters to determine that it should be. He is the fountain of restitute, and the exercise of his divine prerogative is always unquestionable righteousness. That the Lord Jesus, who offered himself as a willing surety and substitute, should be accepted as a surety and substitute for guilty man was in the power of the great supreme. In his divine sovereignty, he accepted him, and before the sovereignty, he bow, we bow. If any question it, our only answer is, Nay, but, O man, who are thou that repliest against God? The death of our Lord also displayed divine justice. It pleased God as the judge of all that sin should not be forgiven without the exaction of the punishment which, should have, which had been so righteously threatened to it or such other display of justice as might vindicate the law. They say that this is not the God of love. I answer, it is. It is the God of love. Preeminently so. If you had upon the bench today a judge whose nature was kindness itself, it would behoove him as a judge to execute justice, and if he did not, he would make his kindness ridiculous. Indeed, his kindness to the criminal would be unthinkable kindness to society at large.
whatever the judge may be personally, he is officially compelled to do justice. And shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You speak of the fatherhood of God. Enlarge as you please upon that theme, even till you make a heresy of it. But still, God is the great moral governor of the universe, and it behooves him to deal with sin in such a way that it seems to be an evil and a bitter thing. God cannot wink at wickedness. I bless his holy name, and I adore him that he is not unjust in order to be merciful, that he does not spare the guilty in order to indulge his gentleness. Every transgression and pardon, I bless his holy name. Wait. Every transgression and disobedience has its just recompense of reward. But though this, through the sacrifice of Christ, he is able to justly pardon. I bless his holy name that to vindicate his justice, he determined that which it, while a free pardon should be provided for believers, it should be grounded upon an atonement which satisfied all the requirements of the law. Admire also in the substitutionary sacrifice the great grace of God. Never forget that he whom God made to be sin for us was his own son. A, I go further. It was in some sense his own self, for the son is one with the father. You may not confound the persons, but you cannot divide the substance of the blessed trinity in unity. You may not so divide the son of God from the father as to forget that God was in him reconciling the world unto himself. It is the Father's other self who the cross in human form does bleed and die. Light of light, very God of very God. It is the light that was eclipsed, that Godhead which purchased the church with his own blood. Herein is infinite love. You tell me that God might have pardoned without atonement. I answer that finite infallible love might have done so and thus have wounded itself by killing justice. But the love which both requires and provideth the atonement in, in, is indeed infinite. God himself provided the atonement by freely and fully giving up himself in the person of his Son to suffer in consequence of human sin. What I want you to notice here is this. If ever your mind should be troubled about your propriety or rightness of a substitutionary sacrifice, you may at once settle the matter by remembering that God himself has made him to be sin who knew no sin. If God did it, it is well done. I am not, I am not careful to defend an act of God. Let the man who dares accuse his maker think what he is at, where he is at. If God himself provided, provided the sacrifice, be you sure that he has accepted it. There can be no question ever raised about it. Since Jehovah made to meet on him our iniquities. He that made Christ to be sin for us knew that knew what he did, and it is not for us to begin to say, Is this right or is this not right? The thrice holy God has done this, and it must be right. That which satisfies God may very well satisfy us. If God is pleased with the sacrifice of Christ, shall we not be much more pleased? Shall we not be delighted, entranced, imparadised, to be saved by such a sacrifice as God himself appoints, provides, and accepts? He has made him to be sin for us. The last point is, what happens to us in consequence? that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Oh, this weighty text. No man can exhaust it. No theologian lived even in the palmiest of days of theology that could ever get to the bottom of this statement. Every man that believes in Jesus is through Christ, having taken this, his sin, made to be righteous before God. We are righteous through faith in Christ Jesus, justified in faith. More than this, 
we are made not only to have the character of righteous, but to become the substance called righteousness. I cannot explain this, but it is no small matter. It means no inconsiderable thing when we are said to be made righteousness. What's more, we are not only made righteousness, but we are made the righteousness of God. Herein is a great mystery. The righteousness which Adam had in the garden was perfect, but it was the righteousness of man. Ours is the righteousness of God. Human righteousness failed, but the believer has a divine righteousness which can never fail. He not only has it, but he is it. He has made the righteousness of God in Christ. We can now sing with my Savior's vesture on, holy as the Holy One. How acceptable with God must those be who are made by God himself the righteousness of God in him. I cannot conceive of anything more complete. As Christ was made sin and yet never sinned, so were we made righteousness through, though we cannot claim to have been righteous in and of ourselves. Sinners, though we be, and forced to confess it with grief, yet the Lord covers us so completely with the righteousness of Christ that, the, that only his righteousness is seen, and we are made the righteousness of God in him. This is true of all the saints, even of as many as believe on his name. Oh, the splendor of this doctrine. Can you see it, my friend? Sinner, though you be, and in yourself defiled, deformed, debased, yet if you will accept the great substitute which God provides for you in the person of his dear Son, your sins are gone from you, and righteousness has come to you. Your sins were laid on Jesus, the scapegoat. They are yours no longer. He has put them away. I may say that his righteousness is imputed unto you, but I go further and say with the text, Thou art made the righteousness of God in him. No doctrine can be more sweet than this to those who feel the weight of sin and the burden of its curse. So now, gather all up. I have to close with the second part of the text, which is not teaching, but the application of teaching. A great argument. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Oh, that these lips had language, or that this heart could speak without them. Then would I plead with every unconverted, unbelieving soul within this place, and plead as for my life. Friend, you are at enmity with God, and God is angry with you. But on his part, there is every readiness for reconciliation. He has made a way by which you can become his friend, a very costly way, but free to you. He could not give up his justice and so destroy the honor of his own character, but he did give up his son, his only begotten son, and his well-beloved, and that son of his has been made sin for us, though he knew no sin. See how God meets you? See how willing, how anxious he is that you, there should be reconciliation between himself and guilty men? Oh, sirs, if you are not saved, it is not because God will not or cannot save you. It is because you refuse to accept his mercy in Christ. If there is any difference between you and God today, it is not from, from want of kindness on his part, it is from want of willingness on yours. The burden of your ruin must lie at your own door. Your blood must be on your own skirt. Now observe what we have said to you this day. We are anxious that you should be at peace with God, and therefore we act as ambassadors for Christ. I am not going to lay any stress upon the office of ambassador as honorable or authoritative, for I do not feel that that would have weight with you. 
but I lay all of the stress upon the peace to which we would bring you. God has reconciled me to himself, and I would fain have you reconciled also. I once knew him not, neither did I care for him. I lived well enough without him, and sported with the trifles of the day so as to forget him. He brought me to seek his face, and seeking his face I found him. He has blotted out my sin and removed my enmity. I know that I am his servant and that he is my friend, my father, my all. And now I cannot help trying in my poor way to be an ambassador for him to you, with you. I do not like that any of you should live at enmity with my father who made you, and that you should be wantonly provoking him by preferring evil to good. Why should you be at peace with why should you not be at peace with the one who so much wants to be at peace with you? Why should you not love the God of love and delight in him who is kind to you? What he has done for me, he is quite willing to do for you. He is a God ready to pardon. I have preached his gospel now for many years, but I have never met a sinner yet that Christ refused to cleanse when he came to him. I never knew a single case of a man who trusted Jesus and asked to be forgiven, confessing his sins and forsaking it that was cast out. I say, I never met one man who Jesus refused, nor shall I ever do so. I have spoken with harlots whom he has restored to purity and drunkards who he has delivered from their evil habits and with men guilty of foul sins who have become pure and chaste through the grace of our Lord Jesus. They have always told me the same story. I sought the Lord, and he heard me. He has washed me in this blood, and I am whiter than snow. Why should you not be saved as well as these? Dear friends, dear friend, perhaps you have never thought of this matter, and this morning you did not come here with any idea of thinking of it. But why should you not begin? You came just to hear a well-known preacher, I pray you forget the preacher and think only of yourself, your God, and your Savior. It must be wrong for you to live without a thought of your Maker. To forget Him is to despise Him. It must be wrong for you to refuse the great atonement. You do refuse it if you do not accept it at once. It must be wrong for you to stand out against your God, and you do stand out against Him if you will not be reconciled to Him. Therefore, I humbly play the part of an ambassador for Christ, and I beseech you, believe in him and live. Notice how the text puts it. We are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. This thought staggers me. As I came along this morning, I felt as I could bury my head in my hands and weep as, as I thought of God's beseeching anybody. He speaks, and it is done. Myriads of angels count themselves happy to fly at his command, and yet man has to be has so become God's enemy that he will not be reconciled to him. God would make him his friend and spends the blood of his dear son to cement the friendship, but man will not have it. See, the great God turns to beseeching his obstinate creatures, his foolish creatures. In this I feel a reverent compassion for God. Must he beseech a rebel to be forgiven? Do you hear it? Angels, do you hear it? He who is the king of kings veils his sovereignty and stoops to beseeching his creature to be reconciled to him. I wonder not that some of my brethren start back from an idea and cannot believe that it could be so. It seems so derogatory to the glorious God, yet my text says it, and it must be true. As though God did beseech you by us, this makes it awful work to preach, does it not? I ought to beseech you as though God spoke to you through me, looking at you through these eyes and stretching out his hands as though as his hands through these hands. He says, all day long I stretch my hands forth unto a disobedient and gangsaying people. He speaks softly and tenderly and with 
paternal affection through these poor lips of mine, as though God did beseech you by us. Furthermore, notice that next line, which if possible has even more force in it. We pray you in Christ's stead. Since Jesus died in our stead, we, his redeemed ones, are to pray others in his stead. And as he poured out his heart for sinners in the stead, in their stead, we must in another way pour out our heart for the sinners in his stead. We pray you in Christ's stead. Now if my Lord were here this morning, would he pray you to come to him? I wish my master were more fit to stand in your place at this time. Forgive me that I am so incapable. Help me to break my heart to think that it does not break as it ought to do. For these men and women are determined to destroy themselves and therefore pass you by. My Lord, as though you were but a common fellow hanging on a gibbet. O oh, men, how can you think so little of the death of the Son of God? It is the wonder of time, the administration of eternity. O oh, souls, why will you refuse eternal life? Will you die? Will you despise him by whom alone you can live? There is but one gate of life. That gate is open sight of Christ. Why will you not enter and live? Come unto me, says he. Come unto me. I think I hear him. I think I hear him say it. Come unto me, all ye laborers, all ye that labor and that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. I think I see him on the last day, that great day of the feast, standing and crying. If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. I hear him sweetly declare, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I am not fit to pray you in Christ's stead, but I do pray you with all my heart. You, you that hear my voice from Sunday to Sunday, do come and accept the great sacrifice and be reconciled to God. You that, he, that hear me but this once, I would like you to go away with this ringing in your ears. Be reconciled to God. I have nothing pretty to say to you. I have only to declare that God has prepared propitiation and that now he entreats sinners to come to Jesus, that through him they may be reconciled to God. We do not exhort you to some impossible effort. We do not bid you to do some great thing. We do not ask for your money or price, neither do we demand of your years of miserable feeling, but only this, be ye reconciled. It is not so much reconcile yourself as be reconciled. Yield yourself to him who round you now the bands of a man would cast, drawing you with cords of love because he is given for you. He was given for you. His spirit strives with you. Yield to his striving. With Jacob you know there a wrestling a, there wrestled a man till the breaking of the day. Let that man that God man overcome you. Submit yourselves. Yield to the grasp of those hands which were nailed in the cross for you. Will you not yield to your best friend? He that does embrace you now presses you into a heart. He that does embrace you now presses you to a heart that was pierced with the spear on your behalf. Oh, yield thee. Yield thee, O oh man, do you not feel some softness stealing do you not feel some softness stealing over you? Steal not your heart against it. He says with a tone most still and sweet, Today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, believe and live. Quit the arch enemy who has held you in his grip. Escape for your life, look not behind you. Stay not in all the plain, but flee where you see the open door of the great Father's house. And at the gate, the bleeding Savior is waiting to receive you. And I say, I was, and to say, I was made sin for thee, and thou art made the righteousness of God in me. Father, draw them.
Father, draw them. Eternal Spirit, draw them. For Jesus Christ, your Son's sake. Amen. And as far as uh, Charles Spurgeon's life, he was uh, growing up in a home his, where his father was a pastor and uh, they read the Pilgrim's Progress and a lot of hymns, but he didn't actually become a Christian until later on um, as a young man, actually. Uh, he was seeking after the Lord, but, but he couldn't seem to, to have a saving faith. And he was crying out to God and it was a snowy day. He was walking along and stumbled into a, a church in a rural area where a pastor was preaching on the text, look to the Lord and be saved. And God used that to actually bring him into a new life, uh, the, the rebirth, if you will. And uh, it just goes to show that, you know, God is is using people all over the place and he's, he's going to use us just like what we just read and in this really great sermon. Um, you know, we're, we're ambassadors for Christ, and, and as Christians, we should always be ready to, uh, to beseech others, you know, on behalf of God, because that's what, that's really what God has, has called us to do. As far as his life went, I know that uh, Charles Spurgeon suffered from a lot of different ailments, um, always something physical, health-related, uh, depression. His wife had some some health issues um and that's another thing i I think uh, he was a very he he got into ministry very early on after his conversion he was very young um you know and sometimes i I look at those those ailments as almost a thorn in the flesh um how easy would it have been to to become proud Uh, most of you probably are well familiar with spurgeon but for those of you who aren't, he was really, really well-known, probably the most popular preacher of his day. Um, people still call him the Prince of, of Preachers. And so you can imagine that um, there's probably the temptation to be proud. And the Lord allowed some things into his life that kept him from being proud. proud. Well, I sure am thankful that you've listened today. I'm sure thankful that you've tuned in. Um, today was a little bit different. would love to have some more guests on the show, but uh, just kind of the way that things went, this is how it, how it ended up. And uh, once again, this is the Gospel Podcast, um, and we look forward to, to next Saturday. And until then, farewell, and as always, to God be the glory.